0: Welcome to the Semper Reformata Podcast. Spreading the word and contending for the faith. Now Acts 13 is a pivotal chapter in the book of Acts. It was when I was thinking about this, I realized that, as far as I'm concerned anyway, if someone had asked me what happens in Acts chapter 13, I'd probably have looked blankly and thought, I can't remember. It's not a well-known passage, and yet it's a vitally important one, for it marks a new chapter in church history, and it gives us an amazing insight into the character of Paul, we know of course now from reading books like Romans and Ephesians and Galatians and we know that Paul was a superb theologian. We know from his letters. We know that he was a great pastor. We've read first Corinthians and Second Corinthians and Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon. We know that he was a leader of men. Probably well, we have read, First and 2 Timothy and Titus, but in chapter 13, we will see Paul, the missionary evangelist, the orator, the Christian apologist, and much, much more. I want to look at the chapter, the passage we've read together, rather just under three headings, as usual. Paul's preparation for missionary service, and the first opposition that he received to his missionary service, and lastly, the reward of missionary service. Chapter, one and, chapter, one, chapter 13 and verse 4 tells us, So they, being sent away by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, And from thence they sailed to Cyprus. Um, Barnabas and Saul had been in Jerusalem. They'd been ministering to the believers there in a very practical way. Remember that the church at Antioch had sent aid to the church at Jerusalem. It was the practical outworking of their faith in response to the preaching of God's word in Acts chapter 11. And so they would have known... Paul and Barnabas would have known, I'm sure, about Peter's divine deliverance from prison. Perhaps even witnessed it for themselves. Who knows, they may even have been in that prayer meeting. It's mentioned in chapter 12. Their faith would have been greatly strengthened. They've been commissioned by the church at Antioch in Acts chapter 12 and verse 25. Barnabas and Saul... um, Returned from Jerusalem, they fulfilled their ministry. Took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Neither were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers. He gave us a list of them. And in verse 2 of chapter 13, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. So, they have been called to the Lord's work. And a new mission begins. It's Paul's first missionary journey. And it's going to begin with an outreach, a gospel outreach on the island of Cyprus. And he's received a call to this ministry. Now, what does that mean, call to ministry? Because you hear so much about that sort of thing in the charismatic movement today and in modern church life. Uh, it was interesting, I, I noticed an email that I got last night, I think, um, from someone who had talked about this to yesterday's deal at Belfast Telegraph, uh, that there was a woman minister, so-called, uh, who was speaking in her talking, writing, in that page that's supposed to be about the, the life of various Christians and they were asked the question as they were all asked how did you come to faith and when you read how she came to faith there was absolutely nothing spiritual in it, she just went and visited the rector and that was her conversion and there's lots of things like that and it's so in the charismatic movement as well where people hear strange voices calling them into ministry where You have all sorts of dreams and visions calling people into ministry. Now, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater to coin a phrase. These people were divinely called to this work. They were sent out by the Holy Spirit. In verse 2, the Holy Spirit has spoken to the church at Antioch instructing the elders there to separate Paul and Barnabas for this work. In essence, this is the start of their ministry. It's a specific call from God. It's the start of all ministry. There must be a call from the Lord. Not, of course, in the same way that that call was issued to Paul and Barnabas, but a call nevertheless. It's not a feeling, it's not a desire for a profitable, respectable career. It's the call of God. Back in the early 1980s, I had a phone call from a man. Um, Let's call him Peter. And Peter wanted to speak to me because he felt that he had been called to become a pastor, a minister. And he wanted some advice. And he already had a very good career. He was doing a good job. It was a dangerous career at that time. But he was doing a good job and he was had been promoted, and his inquiry to me on the phone that day was about whether he should become a Presbyterian minister or a Church of Ireland minister. And his uh, problem was that he felt inclined to be a Church of Ireland minister because his parents belonged to the Church of Ireland, but he'd heard that the Presbyterians paid better. And he said to me, What would be the requirements? Like, what educational requirements would I need? Now, I'm not very tactful, I'm afraid. And my reply was that one of the basic requirements to go into ministry, I would think, was that you would have to actually be a Christian. Now, his reply was very simple. It said, Over the phone to me, he said, Oh, I hadn't thought of that. He he, he actually went on to be a minister. Uh, And I won't tell you publicly what denomination. But what is the call of God? How do we recognise it? I've enlisted the help of Martin Lloyd Jones. Lloyd-Jones said, preachers are born, not made. This is an absolute. You will never teach a man to be a preacher if he is not already one. Lloyd-Jones identified six principles which constitute a call to service, uh, which he would think that anyone who is called to the Lord's work in any form of service would need to hear. It would be, first of all, an inner compulsion, within the person who is called to preach the word, the desire to serve God, the preaching of the word becomes like an obsession. Lloyd-Jones says you do your utmost to push back and to rid yourself of this disturbance in your spirit which comes in these various ways but you reach the point where you cannot do so any longer. It becomes an obsession, so overwhelming in the end you will say, I can do nothing else. I cannot resist any longer. His second of the six principles is that there will be an outside influence that will come to the one called. It may be the encouragement of a pastor or a friend, someone who literally pushes you forward to stand up and open your mouth and declare the gospel. The third principle is, is the one so-called will have a loving concern for the souls of others, a concern about lost souls, a concern about the decline of the true faith, a loving desire to teach others the scriptures, whatever the cost of that may be. Then there would be a sense of constraint, an overwhelming sense, a sense that you are in the grip of God that he will not let you do and and you cannot do anything else. You must do this work. Lloyd-Jones says there will be a sobering humility. I once served under a deacon. Yes, I got that right. I once served under a deacon in a church who loved to be in the pulpit. And before the service would begin, he would make it his business to be standing in the pulpit writing out the announcements. He read out the announcements. And he would write those announcements out standing up in the pulpit like this. And as people came in the back door, he would acknowledge them and wave at them and speak to them. And everybody got the impression of how much he loved the pulpit. Lloyd-Jones wrote, the man who is called by God is a man who realises what he is called to do and the awfulness of the task is so great that he shrinks from it. A true calling is marked, says Lloyd-Jones, with a sense of one's own deep unworthiness and inability for the task, never with any pride. He notes also, and this is crucial, But there must be a church endorsement. The man who appoints himself to preach is on shaky ground indeed. The calling must be tested. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? That's it. They are sent. That's what we see happening in Acts chapter 13, 1-4. The local church, recognizing the call of God on Paul and Barnabas for this unique work, endorses their call and commissions them by the laying on of hands and prayer. Preparation for missionary service began with that call to the ministry. They were called. The Lord called them. And they needed support. They have an assistant. Uh, It is uh, John Mark uh, of whom we shall see later a little bit more. The term here is interesting. John Mark is not the servant in the sense of being, uh, if you know what I mean, their skivvy. He's not there to serve them in that sense. He is their assistant in the ministry. And I wonder what his role is. Matthew Henry speculates that they had John for their minister, not their servant in common things, but their assistant in the things of God, to prepare their way in places where they're designed to come, to carry on their work in places where they had been, to converse with those to whom they had preached publicly, to explain things to them. He was a catechist explaining what had been preached. And so they take their first steps on the journey. They've been called, they've been commissioned. They've got their helper, the missionaries set out. They travel from Antioch to the seaport of Seleucia and then by boat to the northern port of the island of Cyprus to the town of Salamis. They preach in the synagogue, preach the gospel to the local Jewish population. They travel down throughout the island and they come to the capital, Pathos. And Cyprus is a very pleasant land. Sometimes colloquially, it was known as Makarios, the Greek word for blessed. A good climate, good agriculture, a very welcoming population. To live there was a very blessed thing indeed. It was a rich reward for any official in the court of Caesar to be posted to the Isle of Cyprus. And here we meet a man called Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus is the governor of the island of Cyprus. And he wasn't at all like the last governor we met, uh, Herod Agrippa. This governor doesn't seem to have been driven by passion or self-aggrandizement or ruthless ambition he wanted to hear what the men had to say he wanted to weigh it up for themselves wonder would he be humble enough to accept the teaching of the law to admit that he's a sinner to repent and to turn to christ be good if he did that would be tremendous advantage in the ongoing evangelization of the island but there's a hurdle And it's here we see the opposition that occurs to missionary service. Paphos, you see, is the capital. It's the seat of the regional government in Cyprus. The city is devoted to the worship of the pagan goddess Venus. There's a huge temple built there for her honor. It was, like many of our modern cities, a place obsessed with filth, and sexual depravity, Paphos needed the gospel, but there was opposition, just like everywhere else. So we see here the source of the opposition. Look at verse six. And when they had gone through the isle onto the onto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar Jesus which was with the deputy of the country, country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. Opposition came from a man called Bar-Jesus. Don't read anything into that. He wasn't the Antichrist. He wasn't pretending to be Jesus or the son of Jesus. The name simply means the son of Joshua. And in Greek, it was translated Elemus. He was a Jew. Obviously not a very faithful Jew, obviously not a practicing Jew, not by any means a Jew of the strict rabbinical traditions that Paul had learned as a boy. He was a sorcerer, a diviner, a man who made his living with witchcraft and false magic and reading people's horoscopes and telling their fortune. He was a conjurer. And basically he was a hanger-on, at the governor's palace. There's no surprise there. Many of the governors of the ancient Near East kept such men in their employment. A grand vizier, a seer, a diviner of some sort. But you can see the problem right away. The governor wants to hear what Paul and Barnabas are talking about. So he invites them to the palace and immediately Elimus says suspicious. What if this, what if these two preachers turn the heart of the governor away from the superstition and, and the witchcraft and, and the, the conjuring act that Elemas was doing? He would lose his source of income. He must stop it before it gets out of hand. And so the Bible records that he withstood them. It says in verse 8, But Elemus The sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. See the severity of Paul's response, the source of the opposition, the severity of Paul's response. Then Saul, who is called Paul, verse 9. Filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him, and said, "O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thy enemy of unright, the enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord?" Do you see the harshness with which Paul spoke? Don't you? <laughs> Can you contrast that with the modern tendency to tolerate opposition to the gospel? Do you know when there's opposition to the gospel today, Christians will hardly lift a finger, hardly speak a word. If we were to speak to a Roman Catholic or to a Unitarian or to a Mormon uh, with the words and the tone that Paul has just used, to we would be condemned, ironically, as being unchristlike or being judgmental. How can you hope to win pure elements to the Lord with harsh words like that? But there's a grave issue at stake here. The gospel is about the souls of men. There's a man here called Sergius Paulus. There's a man here who is teetering between life and death, between forgiveness and peace with God on the one hand, and a lost, never-ending eternity in the lake of fire on the other hand. Here's a man who's on the very point of eternity. And this fool, for the sake of money, is trying to stop him coming to Christ. Is it any wonder Paul used strong language? High right he was. Paul is enraged that someone, for the sake of filthy lucre, would attempt to deflect a soul from eternal salvation. There would always be opposition to God's work, whether in the missionary context or in the pastoral care of the church. About 20 years ago, a woman had taken a stroke, a very serious stroke, and I visited her in the city hospital. It was a Monday. I was able to sit by her bed and I sat beside her and... She was able to talk to me, and as a regular church attender, she had never any experience of salvation, never any experience of conversion. And I sat with her that day, and I held her hand, and I warned her about the danger of going into a lost eternity. And I pleaded with her to consider Christ. The following Thursday of that same week, I was sitting with her sister, Preparing that lady's funeral. For she died on the Wednesday. And I spoke to her on the Monday. And as I was leaving the house, I explained to her sister what I had said to her on the Monday. She acknowledged that. She said, oh yes, she told me that you had been in. And told me that you said she needed to be saved. And she said she was thinking about it. I said, that's good. I wonder then, did she come to Christ? Oh no, was the sister's reply. I told her to pay no attention to you, for you're always going around telling people things like that. I told her that she never smoked or drank and that she was a good person, she didn't need all that salvation stuff. Do you know, I can't properly recall now my reply. I was somewhat cross to say the least. I just hope that she listened to me and not her sister. I think we're right to be cross as Paul was with those who are seeking to deflect people from coming to Christ. Lastly, time's gone. The reward of missionary service. Verse 12. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astounded at the doctrine of the Lord. One of the greatest joys of all is to witness a soul coming to faith in Jesus, isn't it? Resting in Christ's finished work on the cross alone. That's the real reward of the missionary labourer. That's the real reward of the evangelist, the pastor, the personal worker, the Sabbath school teacher, the tract distributor, the one who simply witnesses to their family and prays for their friends. That's the reward when someone comes to Christ. And yet there's something we should note about the governor's conversion. It's very evident here in verse 12. The deputy, when he saw what was done, believed being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. There's something interesting in the way that's worded, isn't there? What was it he saw? Well, he had seen... Um, Paul rebuking the sorcerer, and he had seen the sorcerer losing his sight, but none of those things would make you inclined to come to Christ, would they? I mean, they might make you a bit uh, stand and wonder a bit, and you would think that's a strange thing, but in and of themselves, none of those things are are saving. None of those things are the gospel. But the proconsul saw what was done and believed. Not because he saw, but because he heard. What he saw was the grace of God in action. What astonished him into salvation was the teaching of the Lord. The doctrine of of the Lord. And that's certainly in keeping with Paul's own teaching that the gospel, the preaching of good news, is what brings conversion to sinners. The proconsul saw what was done and believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Faith cometh by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. So we have Paul's preparation, his call to missionary service. We have the opposition that comes from those who want to thwart the work of God's kingdom that has never ceased. And we have the real reward of service for the Lord. See a sinner repent of their sins and come to Jesus.